Welcome back to Dungeons and Drama Nerds, a podcast where we explore the intersection between theater and tabletop role-playing games. I'm Nick Orvis, here with Todd. Hello. And Percy. Hi. As well as a guest whom some of you may recognize as the player of AZ Honey from our ongoing campaign of Apocalypse World, Ella Mock. Hi, y'all. This week, we're here discussing the way Apocalypse World applies game mechanics to relationships and the way that that ties into interactions between players and how that might relate to the ways that we stage intimacy in the theater. So Ella, to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work as an intimacy director? Absolutely. Um, So where do I start? Okay, so first and foremost, I started as um, an actor and I had a lot of awful experiences uh, as a high school theater person who thought that I had to go like above and beyond to get everything done, which I think a lot of high school theater people can relate to. Um, A few years ago, I started working with this really awesome organization called Speak About It, which does um, consent and sex education for high schools and colleges uh, across the country. And we use a lot of different theater tools to make that happen. And around the same time, I realized that like intimacy choreography slash coordination slash direction is a thing that exists. And I was like, oh, this is literally my dream job. Uh, Combining um, consent education with theater making to build these like beautiful braver spaces. So I will say that I'm pretty new. Uh, I don't know everything there is to know. And um, I'm really excited to be currently learning from the folks at... um, uh, theatrical intimacy education with uh, Chelsea Pace and Laura Record. They are really, really rad folks. They're doing a lot of great stuff in the field and in in training in this really weird time. So if anybody else is interested, I'll just start off by saying go see what workshops they have available. Uh, there might still be a few left. Great. Yeah. Intimacy direction is, a, I feel like, a really new field. I I only heard of it, I think, maybe five or six years ago at the most. And it feels like there's just been a groundswell of kind of interest and desire to have that in the theater, which is all to the good. Um, But for people who aren't as familiar with it, uh, can you tell us some of the kind of core beliefs or values that inform your work in intimacy direction? Sure. So um, one of uh, the folks at TAE, Laura, talks about... um, building boundaries for boundless creativity. We ask people to come into the theater and get uncomfortable. And so I don't think that there's any situation where we're not asking actors to also get uncomfortable, but it's important to delineate what's comfort and what's safety. There may be a place where an actor can get to where they feel uncomfortable or like icky because there are a lot of icky characters in theater and there are a lot of icky situations and like that's okay there's nothing inherently wrong with that but we should not be asking actors to go to unsafe places at the very least we should not be asking actors to go to unsafe places without support and without exit strategies which is what a lot of western theater has asked actors to do for so long especially with like the the common like industrial understanding of what directors are supposed to be and what direction is supposed to be as just like command, command received. There's no room for consent in there. Um, And so I do think that like intimacy direction has really rose up as we're coming to this reckoning, uh, you know, where 
theater as an industry fits within the larger like Me Too movement and our reckonings with rape culture, our reckonings with consent culture. It really folds in a lot of lessons that we're learning from communities who have already started doing this work and been doing uh, this like consent building work for a long time. And we're trying to make it available to like the wider world of secular theater. Yeah. Skipping ahead slightly, Ella, I just want to ask what when you when we talk about intimacy direction, how do you define intimacy in in your work? (laughs) What is not intimacy? (laughs) I I truly think this. I truly think like, just like in real life, like anything can be intimate. Like you can see someone from across the room and that can be a moment of intimacy. There doesn't have to be touch. Um, Also, intimacy isn't always partnered. Like solo intimacy is a very real thing. And like, that may be something that someone like needs a hand with on stage, especially if there's like a specific aesthetic that's like involved in a show or if there's a um, like anything specific, any like specific blocks within an actor, like beyond therapy, like we should all be in therapy. And if that's the thing that's like, (laughs) you need to get through blocks as an artist, like (laughs) don't rely on an intimacy. Um. Okay, but like to actually try and answer your question, I think it's any meaningful connection, any meaningful connection with another person, oneself, an object, like there are a lot of different ways to practice intimacy. And that's not to say that like any moment of gravitas needs an intimacy choreographer or an intimacy director, but like it's worth holding it as intimacy because intimate moments, because intimacy is a choice. It's an interesting choice on stage. It's an interesting fuel for an actor. And so at the very least, it should be recognized as like, ooh, like we're choosing intimacy here. What would you say the the purpose of intimacy choreography in theater is in like a practical sense? And, and what does that look like in an ideal rehearsal setting in in practice? Mm-hmm. Okay, so like, what is what is the purpose, and what can it look like? Yes. Um, I think that the base purpose is to like make good art. <laughs> you know, like we can't we can't make good art if we're not safe. I know, like, if I'm watching a play and somebody does some fight choreography that I'm like, oh, that has not been rehearsed well enough. I'm like out. My mind is like on the actor's safety. I'm not in the world of the show anymore. I'm no longer worried about the character. I'm totally worried about like the real life body on stage. And so as like, you know, hopefully more and more people who come to the theater are becoming more and more aware of like what harm can look like and being more and more aware of that, like we should care about people being harmed. Um, We want to make sure that the the these moments of intimacy or these moments of harm, these moments of assault, these moments of violence um, are done in a way that's safe, that makes good art and is actually sustainable for an actor to repeat night after night. A lot of the tenants are very, very similar to fight choreography, are very, very similar to like any other safety measure on stage. And it's interesting that 
intimacy choreography is placed in such a separate column. And I think a lot of it has to do with like, people tend to ascribe the main danger of not having intimacy choreography with being like a purely mental or emotional one. But like, it's also, it's about one's whole safety. Like if I'm stuck in my head, I might forget my lines. I might forget my like, whatever else choreography is next. So yeah, the purpose of intimacy choreography is to get us, give actors a way of getting in to uh, moments of intimacy, violence, harm, assault, etc., and a way to get out. That's actually one thing we talk about a lot is like, you got to be able to go on to the next scene. And even if the character is still dwelling in a moment, like you as the actor need um, a, a, an exit strategy to, to get out of those heated moments. I think ultimately... <laughs> okay, so I'll be like, maybe this is a little TMI, but like, I've been to therapy a lot. Um, <laughs> we stand. Yeah, <laughs> which is great. Therapy is amazing. Um, and the best therapists I know are people who are like, I don't want my job to exist anymore, anymore because like you should have these tools for yourself. You should not have to come to me you know, unless it's like really and truly necessary or gives you joy. I feel the same way about a lot of moments of intimacy choreography where like I've entered a space and I thought, oh, like these actors just don't have a lot of practice making and maintaining boundaries. Mm. And that's an unfortunate industry-wide truth that again goes back to like how we think directors and receiving direction should be in like... A, a capitalist industrial sense of making theater. Um, but a lot of times it's like, I just want to give you these tools to not only do this show, but to carry on to like every project you go through in your life to be able to say like, oh, hey, before we start rehearsing this, can we actually talk about um, some physical boundaries uh, can we talk about some steps we need to take? Can we talk about what placeholders work for us as we work up some like moments of contact? Can we talk about what language we like to use for our bodies and these actions? Yeah, it's it's about creating a whole toolbox that can exist within the world of a specific play and just in the world in general. It doesn't even have to exist in theater. This kind of conversation should exist in real life. Which reminds me, I'm so sorry, I'm getting like way away from the question, but these are it's all totally just fine. Like, yeah. Um, ironically, or maybe not ironically, a lot of the same tenets of intimacy choreography exist in like BDSM and kink communities, where it's about the way we get to a dangerous place is by making sure we're all actually safe. And those dangerous places are so interesting to see on stage and they're exhilarating to see and exhilarating to be a part of but we can't get dangerous or vulnerable unless we have that like initial foundation of a consent-based culture okay so going back to what that can look like in rehearsals we i and and others have been called in at a varying number of moments within a show Maybe a director or choreographer, whoever's involved in the first place was like, I'm not touching this. I don't like 
we are going to call in an intimacy choreographer because it's the thing to do because it's the industry thing to do. And that can be anything from like, there's just one kiss, but I don't want to touch it. And it's like, okay, great, cool. We'll like, we'll work on that one kiss. Um, it could be that someone has already choreographed a moment and it's just like not working. There's no actual chemistry between the actors and there's no actual spark within the moment. And they're like, Oh, did we do this wrong? (laughs) It could be that an actor is like, I need someone in here. This is not working for me. Or I don't think it's going to work for me unless there's someone in here advocating specifically. It could be a stage manager. Who's just like an awesome bystander is like something here's not right. (laughs) We should have an extra person in here. So like, we can be called in by a number of people at a number of moments. And sometimes it's undoing work that has happened. Sometimes it's building something from nothing. Sometimes it's just talking to the folks involved and being like, have y'all actually like looked each other in the eyes for 30 seconds and thought about what it's like to be in love? Like, (laughs) have y'all actually like done this groundwork of connection building or of safety building. Um, are, are there any kind of tools that people can employ if, say, they're theater artists or theater practitioners who don't have access to a lot of resources and might not be able to you know, hire an intimacy director just to make their spaces safer? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So there are a number of different things. As long as we're thinking about who's in the room, we should absolutely be thinking about what identities are present. If there's like a white director working with um, black actors, indigenous actors, actors of color, like, and they're like, maybe the only people of color are those actors. Like there should be other folks of color in the room whose identities actually match the folks on stage or like match the identities of the story that's being told. So that's like, that can have to do with intimacy and that can just be about like safety in general. If there are moments of harm or assault or violence, and and I guess I want to say that like I differentiate those things because those things can be differentiated in real life. If somebody's doing like a kinky scene, that can still be sexual violence without being sexual harm. And it's important to have somebody in there who knows what that's supposed to look like and knows how to do that safely. So I just wanted to peel back the curtain on why I use so many words for what sounds like (laughs) the same concept. Um, um, Yeah, if there's anything that's like a heated or potentially harmful moment, um, there should be somebody, at least in like the early rehearsals, who's trained in potentially... um, Uh, mental health first aid. Um, At the very least, there should be resources available for like how a person can go home and decompress or like some toolbox of uh, getting out of that scene. If it's just like a moment of like sweet intimacy or passionate intimacy, it's still good to be able to like get out and leave that behind because like things can get messy when you aren't able to leave that behind and go home. Yeah. I think a lot of it is about making sure like talking to your actors and see what their resources are for like how they care for themselves when they're not at rehearsal and really just having a conversation about like what they 
do for themselves on a regular basis. And I think that this goes back to like, we're just incorporating real life lessons. Like this should be true for any workplace where like a boss, a boss knows, I just did air quotes. I realized we're on a podcast. Um, Um, where like somebody can know how their employees take care of themselves on stressful days so that that stress doesn't keep reappearing at work. If there's not a way at work to acutely deal with that stress. Um, yeah, a lot of it's just conversations like, Hey, how you doing? That was a lot. Um, what sounds good to do right now? What's a good way to like work up to, to doing this, uh, to doing this work? Yeah. Those are some options. So shifting gears a little bit, uh, as we think about collaborative storytelling in theater and around a table, what are some things that you think tabletop players could learn from intimacy directors and choreographers to make sure that everyone's having a safe, fun time, um, especially when in tabletop games, you know, things aren't scripted. And so we might stumble upon a moment of intimacy um, as opposed to like, know it's coming up in scene three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John John did such a good job uh, of of our like session zero really mapping out what we wanted to happen and didn't want to happen um, and like what would actively like stop us in our tracks in the game and what would just make us feel uncomfortable in the game. It was a lot of those same conversations of like what's going to take you out of this game and like make you actively not have fun versus like what's going to be a hard thing to push through, but you feel you might be able to, but we can also check back in in the moment. And it's really, uh, I think it's awesome that this platform exists. That's really examining uh, like theater making and tabletop world building because it's very similar in the way that we can get taken out of stories when there's like real life danger that might happen versus being excited about being in a dangerous situation because it's fun and because we're warriors and warlocks and and like rad hackers you know it's not about avoiding danger it is never about avoiding danger it's about avoiding acute, unsafe practices uh, in a way that uh, makes it not entertaining or fun for anyone. Like, if, like, I don't want to play a game with someone who is entertained by, like, watching me react to something harmful happening. That's not fun for me. And I think that anybody who feels like there has to be an element in the game that would actively cause harm to another player should really like do some self-examination <laughs> and think about why that is. <laughs> like, um, but you know, I'm not here to call anyone out. I'm here to just say like, maybe take a breath and think mm-hmm. about why you feel that way. <laughs> well, I think actually thinking back to our session zero, one of the many things that was so nice about it for me is that it felt like it was also just an opportunity for the four of us who didn't know each other really to build trust and build a connection. And I hadn't thought about how important that actually ended up being because like we were invested in each other's experiences in a way that I think is really useful and helpful. 
Yeah. Although I also don't think any of the four of us are by nature people who wish harm on the other people that we're playing with. (laughs) I would like to think. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, that reminds me of another tie between how that session zero went and how intimacy choreography can go where like, so for, for TIE, we use the word button. If something happens that like an actor needs to take a step back and like do something for themselves to move forward, they can, they say button and that can be any word. Um, you can make it another word as long as it's really similar to a safe word where like, you don't want it to be something that's actually going to come up like in a scene. It's like, out there enough that it's a reset audibly for everyone in the room. But the main thing is that when an actor or anyone in the room calls button, they don't have to explain themselves. And in fact, they shouldn't. The point is not to be therapized in that moment. It's about just saying, oh, I need to take a step back. And in the same way, in the session zero, we were like, yeah, I don't want this to happen. And we didn't have to say, like, it's because this is how it makes me feel, or this is my experience or blah, 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 blah. We didn't have to go into any of that. We could just say, yeah, I don't want that. And then we were all like, great. (laughs) That button thing reminds me of the X card, which is a, um, you know, tabletop kind of safety tool. Have you, had you ever had the, um, experience of using safety tools like that in tabletop games before? Never, never in my life. This was, such a unique experience. Yeah, no, I've, I feel like I've always been told like, this is immersive, stay in it. And like, people who walk away from a game frustrated are just like, but hurt because the game's not going the way they want, you know, and, and like, I remember joking in session zero that like, I only ever play characters who smash things because I, I didn't feel good at role playing. And I didn't feel like, like I was good at staying in character. And I feel like the more I played AZ Honey, the more I was like, oh, I just never wanted to play a character that could be sexualized. I never wanted to play a character that could be put in any situation of like sexual interaction with another player or a situation of sexual harm. Um, because I didn't trust the people I was playing with to actually handle that. And so it was so nice to play a character who, like, she's called a battle, or they're called a battle babe. Their whole point is to be, like, a sexy warrior. And that felt so good to know that I could be that because it was safe to be that. And I just, I hope everybody gets that opportunity because it was so nice. Um, Ella, are there, so outside of the X card and other safety tools that we've discussed, are there any um, thoughts or ideas that you have for safety tools that you think tabletop players should try to employ more regularly? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, one tip we can take from uh, kink communities is a yes, no, maybe list. It's really similar to what we went through in session zero, but it can be actually like printed out or like a PDF or whatever. And you can send it out to your players beforehand so that they can. I think there's something nice about being able to like do it on your own and not worry about if there's going to be like active or audible or visible judgment from other players. A yes, no, maybe list is just like 
a list of situations or words, and there are boxes beside all of them that say yes or no or maybe. And on a lot of them, there's an opportunity to elaborate on that maybe, but it's also just a cue that like, if it has to come up in a storyline, just like check in with me before the session and make sure I'm like in a place to handle that. Um, and no is a never and yes is a sure, let's go for it. And a lot of the good ones I've seen also leave some blank space at the end for folks to fill in uh, their own ideas. Um, I think the concept of a button is really great. And like, again, use macaroni, use feather, use like <laughs> whatever, whatever noun or word works for you. Um, something that has those plosives and something that is like two syllable works really well because it like halts the scene uh, audibly. Also, like we can normalize fantasy worlds where characters ask each other for consent. Can we? We can. Yes. Like we. Yes. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> like so, I think that those conversations can happen. Don't all have to happen um, out of the game. They can happen within the world where like a character can approach another character and just ask a question and like allow that to be honest. And if there needs to be some table talk about that, then like have the table talk, but maybe those conversations can happen in game in a way that like doesn't have to pull us out of it. Um, and those conversations can be about like, do we want to be seen? Do we want to be hidden? And like can even be really specific if it is a game where like, a sexual scene goes in depth and like is detailed, like consent is ongoing. So that conversation between characters can be ongoing. Mm -hmm. That sucks kind of nicely into talking a little bit more specifically about the way that apocalypse world is built just as a game. Apocalypse world talks a lot about sex. It has a lot of specific mechanics related to what happens when two characters have sex with each other. And I'm curious, what do you think is valuable about depicting sex so openly in a, in a game like this? And maybe what are the risks that also come with that? Mm -hmm. So I think apocalypse world makes, <laughs> I guess I keep just thinking of like the Janelle Monáe song Screwed, where she's like, sex is just power, except power, that's just sex. And like, it's it's just that. I think Apocalypse World really makes it about having power over someone, which I think was sad for me, because this is such a harsh world that we could have seen. I would have liked to see more gameplay that allows for vulnerability um, or, or like mechanisms within the gameplay. I mean, that, that allows for vulnerability instead of just power, because I think that like it became kind of, it becomes transactional. Um, if it's like, I want this thing from you, so I will have sex with you, which is like, unfortunately a way, like a thing that happens in the world but like I've been thinking about the apocalypse a lot lately <laughs> and I think that like, I wonder why. Um, and I think that's something that I've really been craving is intimacy and vulnerability and just like trust and closeness. And so painting this version of the apocalypse where sex is about 
power over and potentially like a transaction of power, like two people can have or more people can all like gain something from that interaction. But yeah, I guess I, I have a hard time thinking about what's valuable within this game apart from using it as a tool to think about how that works in real life. Mm -hmm. Mm. There's sort of two components to that, like sex and relationship mechanizing in apocalypse world. There's the, the sex moves, which we've sex moves. I mean, I'm, I'm putting big air quotes around it, but also that is, I'm pretty sure literally what they're called. So I don't know why I'm putting air quotes around it. Uh, there are the yeah. sex moves. And then there's the Hicks, the HX stat, which measures the relationship between two player characters. And I was curious, um, what impact do you think the, the sort of more relational side of that, the Hicks has on gameplay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I felt a couple ways about it because the Hicks wasn't always perfectly scaled with advantage. Sometimes it's like the more Hicks you have with someone, the more of a disadvantage you're at in your relationship. And so, and and like a lot of that had to do with um, the class of the character that you're playing. And so I thought that that was a really interesting challenge and really offered me an opportunity to like, get into the psychology of my character and think like, oh, why does this amount of trust make um, this interaction more difficult? Or like, why is it easier to have this interaction if I don't know this person very well? I have similar conversations with young people all the time about um, bystander intervention where there's a lot of disagreement about like, is it easier to approach someone I know or I don't know if it looks like they're harming or being harmed? The answer varies so widely. And that has so much to do with like, yeah, what a person's life and experiences and and, um, identity has been before that point. So I thought the Hicks was a really interesting curveball. I think that the way relationality worked with sex was just so different from that in a way that like felt weird in a way that that felt inconsistent with what the game felt like it was trying to tell me. Um, And in a way that was built really, really heavily on a model of scarcity, I think, which like, yeah, we're already in the apocalypse. We already know that like everything is scarce. Do we really have to be like, also your trust is, um, you you can like capitalize upon trust and it's, it's, um, a resource that can be traded. I don't know. I, I really wish that there was in this world where we can connect to like a great big ether <laughs> of experience. I wish that there was more of a mechanic, whether it has to do with sex or not, um, that could uh, dive into a less commodified idea of relationality. I mean, I think the like for me, the thing that holds interest about the Hicks stat is the thought that like the more you trust someone, the more you have blinders for them. Um, that like 
by being so trusting of someone, you like might allow them to get away with certain things because you think you know them as like a thing. But I, it does feel the the more transactional aspect of it, or like the way in which it is gamified, even being that this is a game, um, <laughs> the way that you like might try to pursue or not pursue a certain amount of history with someone in order to achieve something, does feel again very transactional. Yeah, and I think that if one was to look for another game that deals with relationality really beautifully, I would look to Night Witches. I think that. Yeah, everybody like makes a cute little face when I think. <laughs> um, I think that that game really uh, like still gamifies relationality, but doesn't commodify it uh, in a gorgeous way. That like I would argue the characters in that game are in an apocalyptic setting as well. What I think is interesting, thinking just to like the way that we, our specific group of people, played this game though is like sex happened we didn't worry about the because i think vance's sex move is literally transactional in that you give them money um, (laughs) like when that happens which is you know like totally cool and fine but also incredibly but i think what's interesting is we never really like i don't think we ever rolled using the hick stat but it was a really useful tool for us to figure out among ourselves what we knew about each other and get information about the nature of those relationships, which ended up being really useful and important as we were playing. So I thought that that was cool. Um, having a framework already built in where we could figure out like, yeah, how well do these two people know each other? Um, is this the person I'm going to ask to take me to the airport or like <laughs> whatever? I, I really felt like I most often I'm trying to, remember when I actually used Hicks or when I used my power. Um, I felt like most often the times when I was rolling against another person was when I knew they were lying to me. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like, let me, (laughs) yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Apocalypse World is so much about information gathering more than anything else, which makes it sound like a lot less fun than it, than it was, (laughs) but it's like, yeah, it's so much about just like what information do I have, which is interesting because we were playing in a specific like story where information was currency um, and everybody was just trying to find out what was going on. Um, so I thought that was we mostly used these relationship mechanics as a means of just building relationships with each other and figuring out what our characters were doing as opposed to like the actual function of the Hick stat, which I think is to like add stuff to other players roles (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I think that we I don't want to say weaponized I I like that we messed with it I like that that we fucked with it a little bit to make it something we there it is Uh replace all weapons with queer Um, (laughs) (laughs) queer Um, every weapon queer every weapon (laughs) Todd is wearing a shirt that says heterosexuality. Oh, I see. <laughs> that is much better than what I thought was just a shirt that said heterosexuality. <laughs> In massive font. Uh, for those of you listening and not watching this say. as a video, it says heterosexuality is a consequence of the fall. Which is a great shirt. But I was like, hmm, queer the weapons. Um, but yeah, I mean, I yeah, I think all the time about the fact that like our cast for Apocalypse World is 100% queer 
and three of us are some flavor of trans identifying. So like what impact that had on our characters and our, the way that we related to each other and the things that mattered to us right? as players. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, I think that like living queerly requires a, a different understanding of relationality than what is common. I've also talked to a lot of queer folks who have had very different, like, who've had very different experiences with learning about consent because there are like fewer examples of what sex should look like, should, again, I'm doing air quotes, look like in common media. Um, There are like fewer or were fewer role models to look up to with like how to interact with a body. And also like for a lot of us, we're like, yeah, you don't know what my body looks like. I'm like, we'll find out if we do, but like every step is a different, um, uh, step of consent in a way. Yeah. Anyway, all that to say, I feel really blessed to be queer and to live a queer experience because it's allowed me such a beautiful, um, interaction with relationality in that way. Yeah. Like you can never take anything for granted when you're living as a queer person. And I think, I don't know. I think that translates really well in some ways to an apocalyptic environment where like trust is limited and you can't assume that anything is, is exactly what you think it is. Um, so I think, yeah. Yay. Apocalypse. Apocalypse. (laughs) So there are playbooks in apocalypse world that are really specifically tied to like the psychic maelstrom TM. Um, (laughs) but they're about letting you read a character's innermost thoughts or um, in some way like psychically manipulate them or learn information about them. And it's like a mind control, mind reading type thing. And I'm curious about, because some of these moves are triggered by moments of physical intimacy of one flavor or another. So I'm curious about um, how you see consent and like the way that we talk about sex and apocalypse world tying into that as well. Hmm. So I I think this is so interesting because there's so many layers to it. Like, how can, like, we have to call it a breach of consent unless, like, the character and the player are informed and agree to this happening. It's a breach of consent on, like, one level or another, right? Um, And I think that this is something interesting, like, differentiating player consent and character consent in the same way that we can differentiate actor consent and character consent. Um, Just because like I, the player know that you, a player have this power. That doesn't mean that like, I don't know. I, I think I'm interested in, in learning more about how consent works in that situation and like works between those lines of, of player and character. I finally started watching the umbrella Academy, which like, thank goodness. But I think that that show has some really interesting conversations around superpowers and consent from like, uh, and I'm not going to spoil anything. I promise for anybody. Cause I have not watched it yet and I need to watch it. Yeah. But, from like manipulation being a thing that's like 
offered with and without consent to like spiritual possession being a thing that's with and without consent, like a whole number of things that, that like could live within that psychic maelstrom idea um, that still require a negotiation and are still acknowledged as breaches of consent. Um, and like, honestly, what it all comes down to is I am here for consent within fantasy worlds. I am here for consent within sci-fi. I'm here for like seeing those conversations happen in real time in these worlds, be they apocalyptic or not. That reminds me of a, um, this is a little bit of a tangent, I guess there, but D and D released in Wizard of the Coast released in Unearthed Arcana, um, love domain for clerics that got it was like, bad it was so bad it was just a <laughs> lot of like charm spells and like ways that you can like get someone to like you even if they don't like you and it was just like it was, yeah it was a lot about control and it was a lot about yeah like magical manipulation and like yeah i i think my point is I think I think the tabletop game community as a whole, but especially like bigger titles like Apocalypse World and D&D don't understand how to incorporate consent meaningfully into gameplay. Um, I mean, I think it's telling that these systems equate control and love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a whole yes. thing um, we don't have time to unpack <laughs> all of that that's a whole other three episodes it's another podcast like are the and I haven't played these games but I know that there's a, I think it's called like Starcrossed or something like that and it involves the Jenga tile system and it's about like dating and relationships but I think it was written by a woman and is about like the anxiety of making yourself vulnerable and relating that to the the Jenga tower that is slowly becoming more and more unstable as you make yourself more vulnerable as opposed to like and there you know there was a, a female partner um McGay on uh, Apocalypse World but I think it's still telling that yeah, I mean, this is a very gonna, masculine, oop. like a masculine, masculine coded idea. world. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I think that's oh, what you said about power equaling love, and like this idea of charming and consent. Just to like bring it back to theater for a hot second. One of the first situations I was in where like I really consciously realized that. I wanted an intimacy choreographer was doing um, uh, Richard III and I was playing uh, Lady Anne and the person who was my Richard is like one of the sweetest men I have ever met in my life. Like just really a teddy bear of a human being. But every time we did that funeral procession scene, where they like come upon each other and they have their whole sparring match. And at the end, it seems like Anne consents to wear his ring and walks away. And he has this whole, what was it like? Was ever woman in this way wooed? Was ever woman in this way won? I have argued with so many 
uh, like Shakespeare scholars who are like, oh yeah, that means it was consensual because she's wearing his ring. It's like, no, like you have to understand the pa- a the power that's at play there, um, b the like fear that's at play there. The, the like there's so many things, and I would argue like a type of charm. Like, it really seems like witchcraft. And maybe it says that at some point in the text, like, how much his charm behaves like magic, behaves like a spell. But this, I was doing this work with this really lovely man. And after, like, a week of rehearsals, he came and sat next to me and was like, hey, I just wanted to check in. Am I doing something wrong? And I was like no, why? What's going on? He's like, every time we finish the scene, you stand as far away from me as possible in the room. And like, when I try to move toward you, you move away. So I wanted to make sure that like, you weren't avoiding me or I hadn't like done something to hurt you or crossed any lines. I didn't realize I had no idea that my body, like, after I left the stage was like, I can't be near this man. (laughs) And I felt so sad because he was my friend. And I realized, like, oh, I actually need a way for, like, Ella to get out of the scene. Um, So then we decided that every time we did that uh, funeral procession scene, we'd wait, like, two minutes, find each other and hug. Um, And it was really lovely. And like, it didn't affect how the show went. It didn't affect the stakes. Um, And it was an opportunity for us to become safe. Um, And also acknowledge that like what happened on stage was not like consensual um, for the characters, but it could remain consensual for us, the actors, in a way that made the show sustainable and made that action sustainable. I, what a what a miracle just having a conversation about about something is <laughs> solves solve so many problems. It's, it's all, all it takes. takes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess like like objectively, you know, maybe it seems excessive that we spent literally over an hour talking about like everything from are you cool with other people drinking while we play up to like you know what are your boundaries and what do you not want to come up but like it was super necessary important work absolutely yeah i'm so so grateful for that experience and we'll also drop in the episode notes a link to the tabletop role-playing game uh safety toolkit which was compiled by kiana shaw because that's a great resource that includes a lot of those tools that john john was using to make your game safe and consensual for everyone at home yeah Ella, do you have any closing closing thoughts or things that you would like our audience to take away into their theater, their very safe pandemic, <laughs> uh, pandemic <laughs> virtual theater escapades or their tabletop games? Um, it's always going to be more awkward if you don't have a conversation than the conversation would actually be. I didn't phrase that very well. Uh, not having the conversation is always going to be more awkward than you think the conversation is going to be. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Ella. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Is there anywhere that we should direct people to find you or find your work online or anything? Yeah, um, feel free. Gosh, I'm like really not professional right now, y'all. <laughs> it's also fine if the answer is no. That's no. 100% fine and we'll just cut me asking this question. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm like, do I want to ask people to like follow my Instagram account? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe just go like and check out theatrical intimacy education and uh, uh, learn some things for yourself, whether you want to be a choreographer, whether you want to be a director. They're just great tools to have in your toolbox for whatever you're doing in the theater. Great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, everybody tune in next week for more of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.